Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's podcast program, School Law Today, part of our conversation on New Jersey education, a program where we try to bring uh, school board attorneys to you on issues that pertain to the school districts in uh, New Jersey. Uh, Today we'll be talking about uh, how to practices a board can take and the administration can take to help maybe reduce costs in the legal area and some practices that you can take in that area. Uh, With me is... uh, I should go back. If you want to participate, you can call uh, 1-347-989-8904 and press 1. And uh, Mike, who's manning our switchboard, will take your questions and um, get them on to me, or we'll put you on the line. Uh, the other one is we have a chat room for, uh, program. You have to log in with New Jersey School Board uh, with the Blog Talk Radio, but uh, I'll be monitoring the chat room if anyone has any questions. Um, with the... Uh, me today is uh, Phil Stern. Phil is uh, an attorney with uh, the firm of DeFrancesco, Bateman, Kuzman, Davis, Lair, and Flom uh, out in Somerset County. Uh, welcome, Phil. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Good. Uh, just tell us, a, I know you've been in uh, in school law for a while, just a little brief background about you and your, your firm, where they are and everything. Sure. Um, I've been practicing education law for 27 years now, um, most of the time on behalf of boards of education, colleges, universities. Uh, Before I was a lawyer, I was a teacher. I taught uh, first grade, high school, and middle school. Most of the time, I spent about eight years as a middle school social studies teacher in Montclair, New Jersey, um, for the Montclair Board of Ed. Uh, So I I have a profound love for what I do. Given given my background in public education, um, as I and I learned something. I didn't know you were a teacher, and I've known you for a number of years too. Um, <laughs> I, I just always imagine everyone started as an attorney. Uh, so let's get on. Uh, you know, districts can find themselves in, in litigation for so many reasons. So you, know, you can be sued anytime for anything at it, anywhere. Um, and so I wanted to talk about some areas about practices that districts can take maybe that will help be preventive, be a little proactive so that they prevent some of these cases. And, you know, uh, teachers and staff members uh, can, uh, in areas such as bullying and discrimination, uh, those come up a lot. Uh, What can districts do in that area maybe to be a little bit more proactive and prevent litigation? Absolutely. Great question. The, um, the the philosophy of our of our firm for example is that we want we want our districts to oh. understand the difference between um, training that is just for the sake of covering one's you know what uh, mm-hmm. often known as CYA okay uh, we mm-hmm. consider CYA to be a fairly low bar as it pertains to doing what needs to be done. On the other hand, if we approach um, educating board members, teachers, administrators, students on issues like bullying, anti-discrimination, in a way that 
represents a commitment to actually change the culture of our school district and make sure that even within the classroom, as teaching and learning is going on, that those aspects of anti-discrimination and anti-bullying play a role in the day-to-day um, uh, experiences of teaching and learning, that that will go a long way toward eliminating uh, some of the many lawsuits that go on. So um, and, uh, I, you finish, then I'll ask the follow-up. No, I, w- I, was, I was also just going to emphasize the fact that um, we have opportunities in our school districts uh, to resolve problems in-house. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the adages that I use very often with all of my clients is that the extent to which we require third parties to make calls for us or to adjudicate matters for us means that very often we relinquish control over the outcome of those matters. And one of the other ways that I think we can go a long way toward reducing uh, uh, litigation, reducing legal costs, et cetera, is in taking advantage of those instances where um, if if it's a meeting with parents and guardians, if it's a meeting with students, if it's a meeting among staff members, board members, administrators, that we take full advantage of the ability to listen to one another, understand one another's perspectives, and work towards a resolution internally. Um, uh, It it is an art that seems to have left us a bit that I I would argue we really need to re-examine. Okay, there's a couple of things. I'll go back to your first point, and I'll come back to the second point, because you have two two things there. One, uh, that the professional development, particularly in areas where you don't do it because all you have to do one hour of, anti-bullying training, we'll just check that box off. The training for staff members and and others has to be pretty, uh, not rigorous, but I guess really have a good uh, uh, feel, a good, I guess rigorous is the word, that it should be really making sure they understand the law more intently instead of going through the motions. Is that the point that you're kind of trying to get through? I I couldn't have said it better. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is this. If we expect to make a difference with, I mean, you know, you, you, Ray, you, you're raising very complicated subjects: anti-bullying, anti-discrimination. I mean, these are these are these are topics that school districts across our country are wrestling with on a day-to-day basis. Um, if if we treat them as kind of uh, a a a one-shot deal, a Band-Aid type of approach, um, then that's the way it's going to be received. And, and that's, okay. the, that's the impact it's going to have, as opposed to um, much more meaningful, ongoing dialogue uh, about these matters. And, and talking about those areas that we're talking about, it could be a lot of things, but say the anti-discrimination and anti-bullying, those are very personal. So your second point was really speak to the parties involved and try to come to a solution uh, and don't make the solution a court case. I I don't mean to sound trite, but we are losing out 
on so many opportunities when we don't train ourselves to listen more carefully to one another. Uh, there are so many problems that come to a lawyer's level that otherwise could have been resolved if people were better at listening to one another's conflicts. Um, and it's, it, it is a, it's a major cause of things kind of spiraling out of control. Right. I, I, I would also emphasize that uh, whether we're talking about a school district or a, a school building, public education and schools in general are top-down, tend to work on a top-down level. In order for school districts to reduce uh, incidents of litigation, the commitment to have a culture that is free of bullying, to have a culture that is free from discrimination, is a commitment that has to permeate from every aspect, whether we're talking about the Board of Education, Central Office Administration, and then within the buildings themselves, from building administration and through the staff. Um, and if there is a consistent emphasis on eradicating, bull in, you know, your example was bull uh, consisted of bullying and discrimination. If we're able to do that um, consistently and show that level of commitment, it's going to happen. Yep. Uh, and if it's coming from the top, from the board and the administration, that usually means that sometimes a change in policy uh, and some procedures. Um, so I guess from your perspective, it might be important, you know, a change in how the district operates. Do they have to then make sure that that, that change in policy is followed with professional development or make sure, you know, communicated somehow? Um, ab absolutely. And, and I would, I would add to that, um, point that as, as you probably know, and as, as, as our listeners probably are aware if a board of education wants to um, either uh, change a policy or um, uh, start a new board policy, the process invariably includes a board meeting where there is a first reading of a policy, and then a which is the way to introduce a board policy, and then the second meeting where there is the second reading of the policy at which time the policy becomes official. Prior to the first reading, during the first reading to the second reading, the board has both a, an ethical obligation, certainly a pragmatic obligation, to make sure that all the individuals who will be affected by that change have to be the, the, the board has an obligation to reach out to any individuals who will be affected by that. Um, and, you know, whether that means through the uh, board policy process, very often boards have policy committees, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And, and the, the committee is going to want to make sure that, that constituents of the district that will be affected by a new policy are aware of that policy, have a feeling that they've had input into it, um, both at the board level meeting itself and within the committee uh, process as well. Yeah, it makes sense because you don't want to have a litigation because the building principal didn't know that the policy had been changed and is maybe following an old policy. 
and look, yeah. as as we know, it it is often it's often a bear to change the way a school district does business one way or another. If there's going to be a change, unless the stakeholders have had an opportunity to, to be part of that change, then it's going to be very difficult to assure that um, the policy is anything more than just paper and something mm-hmm. else that's going to be put into a binder. I want to switch into another area where I know there's always a lot of – could be a lot of areas of litigation, but uh, I'm talking with Phil Stern uh, about ways that dis- districts and boards can uh, save money in the area of litigation and keep it in the classroom. Uh, if you want to ask a question, dial uh, 347-989-8904 and press 1, and I will get the question on to you, or you could just type it in the chat room. Um, there's... Boards of Education usually the biggest employer in the in the community. Uh, you have numerous employees. It's uh, driven by staff members, and there's a lot of you have a collective bargaining agreement that governs a lot. Is there areas in that that boards should be aware of uh, to prevent litigation? Because you know there is litigation with us with within the staff. Absolutely, um, a wonderful question, and it it. In some respects, it harkens back to your first question, Ray, about about ways that that boards can can minimize litigation. Every first of all, uh, a school district that embraces the fact that there is a collective bargaining agreement for a particular group, whether we're talking about teachers, support staff, um, whomever, uh, administrators have associations as well. That collective bargaining agreement represents a promise, a set of promises between the employees of that group and the board. Every collective bargaining agreement that I've ever read has what's known as a grievance procedure in it. Almost every collective bargaining agreement that I've ever read also has the following language uh, in the grievance procedure, which is that every effort shall be made to resolve problems at the lowest possible level, which basically means that if at the building level, if there is a a question regarding a term and condition of employment between a teacher, let's say, and that teacher's principal, then there needs to be very uh, a high premium placed upon that conversation um, in an effort to resolve the problem. Now, it's not always possible to resolve the problem at that level, but I would argue that our administrators need to be uh, more aware of the importance of those communications towards resolving those problems. Now, some collective bargaining agreements allow for a board-level hearing uh, at a grievance. And over the years, uh, my my philosophy of those board-level hearings have changed somewhat uh, consistent with your question about how we can reduce uh, possibilities of litigation arising out of collective bargaining agreements. And, and, And it goes back to what I said before, the extent to which we rely upon third parties to resolve our differences mean we, we relinquish control over those outcomes at a board level grievance hearing. The standard operating procedure is for the association to come in, make its pitch, um, 
the board says thank you very much, and then the association will leave. The board will have a conversation with administration and make a decision one way or the other, inevitably denying the grievance. I would argue that the process of the board-level hearing should be a robust conversation um, among members, not necessarily members of the board, but if a board member has a, has a process type of question about a particular grievance, they certainly have a right to ask. And what, what, I, what I'd like to emphasize is that there's a big difference between a robust conversation at the board level and, an, and a grievance arbitration, which is a zero-sum game, which is a, uh, a win-lose, expensive proposition piece of litigation. I would argue that, again, within the collective bargaining arena, that we take full advantage of the conflict resolution mechanisms within the district and make sure that if we have to go to arbitration, we only we we can we can assure ourselves that we've done everything possible to try to resolve the problem before having to go to arbitration. So in doing that, and this kind of goes back to your the first question again about the discrimination, but the process is almost the same. You need to have your your building administrators, your central administration, very aware of the collective bargaining agreement, uh, a cursory knowledge of it, but pretty aware of it. And I guess then the other part is you seem to be emphasizing communication skills <laughs> um, with uh, staff members in this case. So is it important that they do those things in that area too? A absolutely. And and um, a an administrator, any, any building principal, assistant principal, any administrator, and indeed district-wide administrators as well, need to be cognizant of the terms and conditions of the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, and it, it, that that says nothing about the the quality of those terms and conditions. I mean, there's always room for improvement. There's always room for discussion. You know, that that goes to the whole negotiations process itself. But in order for a building to run well, a building administrator is going to want to be very conversant with the collective bargaining agreement. And as an aside, I would argue that. Uh, a building administrator also wants to develop as positive a relationship as possible with association representatives. All right. And um, now we'll move on from those internal within the building uh, and we'll get more a little to the governance and where the board level is. Um, and, uh, and I've seen this, and there's always advocates out there who are watching you. And um, we have what we call the Open Public Meetings Act. And boards are governed by that, and the, the governance and the Sunshine Laws is also known as. Uh, what should they be aware of in that area, as a, both a board and the administration? Wonderful question. I I think in in my 27 years of representing boards of education, I have been to literally thousands of board meetings. Uh, one of the most important thing for board members to remember to to be aware of is that the statutory structure of the Open Public Meetings Act is geared towards openness and transparency. Um, 
And so the best way to manifest the adherence to those uh, qualities about the Open Public Meetings Act is to make sure that at a Board of Education meeting, members of the public feel very comfortable raising their opinions irrespective of whether they are for or against something that the board is doing. I, I think it would be very helpful for board members to be reminded that it goes a long way for members of our public and our constituencies and our, you know, this is a very democratic process, to see our board members actively listening to members of the public when they are when they're speaking, for example. Um, that that uh, environment at a board meeting uh, can go a long way towards people trusting that even if we have a, 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 a controversial topic or if there's something that is, uh, you know, that brings out hundreds and hundreds of people, as long as the board is adhering to its obligation to openness, to listening, uh, to a free exchange of ideas, uh, then then board meetings can be meaningful uh, forums, you know, in which to again solve problems and and uh, take care of ultimately the bottom line, which is teaching and learning of our of our children. So, are you kind of saying that at, at a meeting, say, and we can everyone will experience at some point a meeting that may not. You make a decision that's not popular or, or thinking about making it, and, you know, you have 100 people there, that it's important for the board at that point to also watch their body language, don't be texting while someone's talking. And because well, if people get a little irritated, they may they may be watching you cross your T's and dot your I's in terms of uh, some of these areas. When When a member of the public sits at a board meeting, they study the board. And so board members need to remember that everything they do is under a microscope. Uh, so body language, yes, uh, certainly. Now, as a matter of law and as a matter of the Open Public Meetings Act um, and as a matter of the Open Public Records Act, board members need to be cognizant of some of the potential pitfalls of our new technologies. I mean, I, I, I say new as, <laughs> as somebody who's – it's new for me. Um, yeah, okay. Not so much, perhaps, for, for, for younger people. But, for example, um, one could argue that a board member uh, actively engaged on their cell phone or on a uh, um, otherwise on a computer or something during a board meeting can run the risk of an allegation that they're violating the Open Public Meetings Act by communicating in a way that the public can't see. Um, so there, there are some very real challenges associated with uh, all of our, our new technologies as it pertains to the Open Public Meetings Act and the Open Public Records Act. And many board members, uh, you know, there, there needs to be as much time as necessary to um, orient our board members to the fact that just because, for example, they may be using a uh, a private email 
to communicate with somebody doesn't mean it may not be discoverable under the Open Public Records Act. Uh, and and that's a, a huge part of the um, orientation, training, education uh, that our board members require under the Open Public Meetings Act and the Open Public Records Act. So they should be aware of, uh, and maybe they do it once a year just to you know remind themselves of some of the key fundamental aspects of the both the Open Public Records Act, which we didn't, you know, I didn't really talk about, but you brought up, it's very good, and also uh, the Open Public Meetings Act, so that they don't, they know when they go into executive session, they do the correct uh, advertisement and correct announcement, and that they're in there for the correct reason. It's all about trust, Ray. If if a if a if there is a culture of trust amongst boards, administrators, teachers, uh, members of the community, students, etc., then it will, it will open things up much more to good discussions about some of the harder issues. If there is always a suspicion that there is something else going on um, behind closed doors, if you will, um, that's, that's going to be a problem for, uh, for for boards of education to try to move forward on on some of the more complicated issues. Uh, before I get to the last one, so it seems to me that what you're saying, one of the things that you're saying is, even if you you're, you need to build the trust in the community and your staff and everyone else, because even if you're doing something legally correct, someone may bring a, a lawsuit against you, and you're spending legal dollars because there's a lack of trust. Absolutely, is that kind of it. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, one other area that I want to move on to, uh, which in terms of trust, uh, and I, I get a lot of these questions about the code of ethics for board members um, in the training that they need in that area. From a school board attorney, where do you see where we can maybe prevent litigation in that area? Uh, to the fact that in 1991, superintendent of schools lost statutory tenure and now have what's known as contractual tenure. And since 1991 to this present day, with the advent of certain other laws, I will mention, for example, uh, superintendent salary caps, etc., we have seen a startling statistic regarding the average lifespan, not actual life, I mean career within a district of a superintendent of schools. And that term is on average about 2.3 years. Whenever there is an issue of leadership problems between a board and a superintendent, a board of education seeks to fill whatever leadership void that might be emerging from whatever problem is going on with the superintendent. If boards of education want to abide strictly by the board member code of ethics, which is at, at the heart of it, Ray, it's really all about the fact that the board sees to it that the district is well run and the superintendent runs the district. The, the, there's the bright line, right? In order for that to happen, we need to cultivate long-term 
relationships with our superintendents. We need to cultivate long-term relationships with our board members over time who, who sit on boards of education for long enough to come to an understanding of the district um, so that we don't have this constant turnover of um, superintendent, board member, etc., so that creates the kinds of voids that, that, quite frankly, is one of the biggest causes of the mischief that we see in violation of the, of the board member code of ethics. Uh, teaching and learning is, is among, if not the most honorable thing people can do. And work as a superintendent, as a board member, as an administrator, as any support staff member, as any teacher, should be heralded as one of the finest things that, that a person can do. I don't think we're there right now. And and I would uh, argue... We're I'm sorry. Actually, almost at the, we're almost there at the end of this program. But I, <laughs> uh, just to kind of rehash and summarize in like 30 seconds or so, uh, in all these areas, I, I think the... the your recommendations are for boards, administrators to be proactive and knowledgeable of their roles, the administrators' roles, uh, and aware of the laws. And uh, it's, I guess, training and professional development of everyone in the in the building and absolutely in central administration. Absolutely. Okay. I'd like to thank Phil Stern for uh, joining me uh, on this program. Phil. Uh, it, it was uh, very good advice. So thank you. Just, I just want to thank you. And that brings us it to the a, end of this program. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ray. Uh, that brings us to the end of this program, and I hope you enjoyed it. And everyone have a good afternoon. Bye now. <laughs>